This week on the Veterinary Viewfinder, dealing with special needs clients. Is your clinic doing enough to make their experience as good as it can be? This week on the Veterinary Viewfinder. Welcome back to the Veterinary Viewfinder, the podcast that tackles the toughest topics in veterinary medicine. And today we're talking about a topic that is very near and dear to my heart that I don't think makes enough news and gets enough conversation within the veterinary community. We're talking about the ability and the ways that we accommodate clients with different needs within our veterinary clinics. But before we get into all of that, I'm one of your hosts, registered veterinary technician, Becky Mosser. And I'm Dr. Ernie Ward. This is one of those topics that we forget about. Now, if you've ever built a veterinary hospital or a business of any sort, if you manage properties as I do, you are very familiar familiar with the 28 CFR and of course those title two and three things that govern everything from door width to access by wheelchairs to even countertop height. So you're familiar with all the mechanics of building a building that is ADA compliant. And if you're not, you need to make sure you familiarize yourself with that stuff and go to the ADA.gov website because there's more reading there than you ever want. What today we want to talk about are those special needs clients that come in, whether they have hearing deficiencies, whether they have visual deficiencies, whether they have autism. And Becky, this was really sparked by a recent presentation that you gave. So start us off by telling us what you talked about and the impact that that's had in our community. Yeah. So on uh, several occasions, I have done a presentation that is, you know, focused on clients with special needs that come into our clinic. And what I found was that this presentation, when I did it recently at Chicago Vet, actually carried on to a conversation on Facebook through a DVM moms group and asking what other clinics are doing to be more incorporated. And it made me feel really good that this conversation was one that got carried on and that people were having more of because we tend to neglect it. And Dr. Arnie, kind of like you said, it comes down to paperwork. It comes down to ADA, but really that's basic level stuff. That's what we're required to do by law. That's the thing that makes accessibility happen. But does it really make our clients feel included? Does it really make us you know, feel like we've gone out of our way to make sure that no matter what the learning style or or the abilities or different abilities, we're catering to our clients. And Becky, I'll tell you, when we started talking about this before the show, it reminded me immediately of an experience I had during my first year of practice ownership way back in 1993. And one day, a, a, a deaf person came into our clinic. And of course, I had never really encountered that in clinical practice. And so here I was faced with a set of communication obstacles and barriers that really I hadn't given any thought to. But what made this very special and impactful to me, Becky, wasn't the fact that we were having these communication difficulties, but it was because of the reason why the person came to us in the first place. This person, during the first few minutes of me meeting him, wrote down on the note that he had left his prior veterinarian because he felt unwelcome. And I think that's the heart of what I want to talk about today. Now, obviously, we were able to communicate through writing, and, and I actually, my wife actually knows some sign language. But my, the point is, Becky, how do we make people with special needs feel more welcome? Not just the mechanics and the door openings, but how do we make them feel more welcome and special? That's exactly right. So 
I think the number one thing we have to do is have conversations, talk about it. Don't feel like you cannot ask somebody who has a accommodation that is needed exactly what it is they need. We sometimes start to assume and try to guess because we feel uncomfortable about asking. And the fact of the matter is, is they would love to tell you how to make their life easier. They really appreciate that you care to hear it from them because they're used to people guessing. Yeah, and Becky, one of the things too is what they don't want you to do. You know, I know I have I have a longtime client who is wheelchair bound, and so she's unable to ambulate on her own. And you know, I remember when she first started coming to us, it seemed like it was laborious and challenging for her to get out of her car, bring her dog in, you know, all that stuff. And and we would rush to her aid, and she would say, "No, I've got this." And so there's also this sense of independence that you don't want to tread on either, right? So sometimes it's knowing what not to do by having this conversation that's just as important. Sure, but again, that goes back to just ask. Can right. I help you with that? No, I got it, thank you though. It's it's not assuming that you have a right to put your hands on anyone's piece of medical equipment in any way because it is an extension of their body. So you don't just grab a person's wheelchair or water right. or assume that you have a right to be in their personal space in any way. But it comes straight down to eye contact, look at that person, they're a human being on their level and say, can I help you or do you have that? And they'll appreciate the help or at least, again, the opportunity to to operate within their comfort zone. And Becky, I'm sure a lot of our listeners can relate to what I'm going to ask you now. And that is, you know, over the, the past decade or decade and a half, I've seen an increasing number of parents come in with children with special needs, specifically autistic children. And I, I think that the first initial response I had, especially when I started seeing more of this, I guess, in the clinical setting, was I didn't know what to say. I, I was afraid to say anything. So what kind of advice do you give during these presentations about how to broach these topics and, and actually say, ask them, you know, how, what, what do you need? Absolutely. So first and foremost, one thing we want to do is understand a language that is really inclusive. And when we use inclusive language, we make sure we put the person before any type of disability or um, need or equipment. And so we would generally say children with autism instead of autistic children because we label these children as autistic instead of saying they're a person first, always a person first. So we want to make sure that we know language and readily, easily use language that is um, inclusive and, and recognizes a person who they are first. Another thing I really love to be able to do is include it on your intake forms when you have a new client patient come in. Ask, do you have any special accommodations we can provide for you during your visit to make you more comfortable? Give them the opportunity to list it out, write it down, and not have to have maybe an uncomfortable conversation with basically a stranger. When it comes to children on the spectrum, the number one thing that we can do is understand all kinds of sensory def differences among all of our clients, whether that's PTSD, uh, you know, children that are on the spectrum or, or people with dysautonomia, which is a, a hearing sensitivity, having low sensory hours in your clinic. And I mean, I'm talking literally two, three hours a month where just any client that needed to take care, take advantage of a quieter time would be able to do that. Letting them know that you can accommodate that by, by getting them in at the very end of the day. It really makes a huge difference in their experience. Yeah, and Becky, that's really, I'm really amazed that you just said that because that's sort of what we defaulted to with uh, our deaf 
clients, <laughs> you know, because we knew that they had special accommodations and needs and they took a lot more time, quite frankly. And so we started scheduling, you know, this two hour block, you know, once a month. And we found that we actually grew our business in that community. So, I mean, I think that's a really important tip to sort of take away from this is saying, if you are trying to serve these special needs, you know, communities, then maybe you should just set aside time. Becky, do you find that to be effective? Absolutely. And and people are so appreciative. You will find, you know, a brand devotion for the rest yeah. of your life because you recognize that this is a need for a mom who really wants her child to be included in this. And I shouldn't I shouldn't say just mom for parents and family members who want their children or, or young adults with sensory differences to be able to be included in the visit and to go and to experience the veterinary visit. We know that these people are incredibly capable. They just learned differently, exposing them to veterinary medicine, how to take care of their pet. It can be an incredible experience for everyone. Yeah. And, and for those of you that are regular listeners, you know, my wife, of course, is a speech language pathologist. And so she had deep ties within, you know, these types of communities. So that's why we started focusing on that early in our career. But the other thing that we started seeing emerge, Becky, especially after the first Gulf War, were people with PTSD and bringing in their own service dogs. And again, one of the things we found very effective for us, and and again, I'm speaking not only in accommodating clients and their pets, but also in building a business, was we started setting aside time for service dogs each month. So we had this little block, you know, half day, and, and we found that that was really effective because like you said, what happened was that community started spreading and saying, hey, you know, Dr. Ward or Seaside Animal Care, they, you know, they have this special <laughs> time <laughs> that you can come because like you said, sometimes people People with PTSD in, in particular, they don't want to come into a crowded lobby, a noisy lobby. So sometimes I think those accommodations can really benefit your practice. That's exactly right. Now, there are a lot of different uh, accommodations for people who have various levels of trauma, and we have to be so considerate from the front door to the, the end of our visit what this looks like for these clients because when we lock them in rooms and close the door and don't ask if that's okay with them or leave the door open when there are loud and sudden noises it can be incredibly stressful for these clients blocking off time to not only accommodate the individual but the the pet that actually helps get them through their lives and this this whole talk actually came from a block of service dog lectures that I do. So it is derived from the special and different needs of clients who utilize dogs for work that that I realized not only did we have to recognize how to take care of those dogs, but we had to recognize how to take care of the people who came in with them. So I, I love that you did that. And, and I think anytime you can find a tiny little block of time to accommodate a, a, a group of clients who just need things to be a little bit different, it, it actually makes it easier for everyone in the clinic because you're not having to stop things and quiet them down or make accommodations in the middle of the day. Everyone has their mind in the set of, okay, we're going to go slow. We're going to go quiet. We're going to make these accommodations through this time frame. Yeah. And again, I we we started expanding this stuff and actually the, these these service dogs and, and so forth kind of were born out of, I think, sort of indirectly are dealing with our deaf community. But the reality is we started extending this to cats and you've probably probably heard me talk on on this podcast and certainly in lectures over the past you know 15 or 20 years saying hey look if you do dog cat it's not a bad idea to reserve like a half day or a day that's feline only or as feline only as you can 
feasibly make it. Because again, what you're doing is creating that awareness with your team. That that's really, I think, that that's part of the problem, right? When when suddenly you know you're confronted with something that's really different during the busy you know melee of the day, then you don't know how to deal with it, right? But if suddenly you go, wait, now is the time when we focus on cats. We want to go slower. We want to be quieter. We want to take a little more time. Same thing that goes with people with special needs. Well, Becky, as we kind of get into this a little further, you have a special connection with PTSD. So maybe just remind some of the the newer listeners about your connection with PTSD and why this is something you're so passionate about. Sure. Right. My husband served in the United States Marine Corps as an infantry Marine for almost nine years. And that included five deployments, four of which to combat zones. And, you know, with that comes a lot of post-traumatic stress and, and reacclimation issues that have, I don't think, even really been clearly defined entirely within the mental health community. And so this group of individuals, men and women, are very near and dear and special to my heart. Um, and it's important to remember. And, and interestingly enough, um, what we have found is that PTSD, you know, it doesn't just in combat combat you know, combat situations and our um, our soldiers and Marines and service members coming back. It's anybody who's experienced any type of trauma. But what we do know is that the brain does differently with combat stress than it does with life traumas and stress. And so individuals who have possibly had a traumatic experience in their life, such as rape or violence, um, even terrible car accidents, they're experiencing a different type of trauma than the people who have been in combat and their brains work differently. And so when we put these labels on individuals, we have a tendency again, you know, you know, not to continue to say it, but to, to assume what they're going to need or, or what their accommodations are or who they are as a person. Right. And really and truly, this is such a broad spectrum thing. We really should consider when we look at mental health all the way across the board, and then when we look at disabilities all the way across the board, more individuals have one than do not. More individuals are struggling with some type of physical, mental, or emotional disability than not. And that actually includes our staff members as well. So we really need to just be looking at every individual around us to say, what can I do to help you be the best person you can be or to make the experience we're having together the best we can? And it sounds real kumbaya and touchy-feely, like I get it. But within our clinics and within our staff, we really have to remember everyone is dealing with something and no one fits into a box. We don't have to measure against each other. Well, Becky, as I've said since I was in vet school, if you're not in this profession for the touchy-feely parts, you're in the wrong profession. <laughs> that's right. So that's why it's so important to have these conversations. And and honestly, I I, I welcome this time because I can tell you that you know, 25, nearly 30 years ago when I first started practice, this was not discussed. This wasn't even on the radar of practice, both for humans or our veterinary doctors. And and I'm so grateful that we're starting to realize this contributes also to our burnout, our compassion fatigue, because we're constantly trying to guess and judge, which is just a burden that we can't sustain. And, and more importantly, this sets the client up for frustration and anger, because when we don't meet their needs or expectations, we trigger them perhaps, or they're primed already to come in you know, and say, wow, these people just don't care or get it. Or, or as I mentioned in the very beginning, you know, this client said, I didn't feel welcome anymore. Yeah. Um, this leads to a lousy job. You know? <laughs> 
Yeah, and, and the thing about that is you're exactly right. It, it affects everyone involved from start to finish, and it can be so negative or it can be so positive. You can go home feeling so good about an interaction that you had that you know you made a difference in someone's life in a way that most people do not. You have to think about what it's like to go through life with a different or, or different abilities or family members with different abilities. It's attached to every moment of your life. And those are that's what we forget when we have brief interactions with individuals. We forget that when they leave us, they have to go to the store and have that same written conversation on a piece of paper to order what they want. When they go to the post office, they have to have that same experience. Very few places that they go is communication easy or whatever the ability that they need accommodated. So when they go somewhere that anyone goes out of their way to make it easy, and then they remember, and that's such an important aspect from the clinic side is when someone asks for an accommodation, it's essential we provide it. They should never have to ask for it a second time. We need to know and make sure we have the right alerts and the right interactions within our staff in place to make sure everyone knows what the accommodation is and that it's bottom line and we never have to make them ask for it again. Yeah, and possible. I, absolutely. Yeah, I love I love what you're doing here. Um, here's the other part of this too. I, I'll never forget um, years and years ago, uh, we were in the exam room. You know, it's it's like a young dog annual exam. You know, pretty routine, boring, right? Yeah. And it's a young mother and a, probably about a five or six year old son, uh, if I remember correctly. And so we are doing our normal appointment flow and the technician comes in and she's going to take the dog to the back to get all its, you know, TPRs, get its blood tests, heartworm tests, fecal tests, all that kind of stuff. Right. And the, the technician walks over and the dog is kind of being held by the, the little boy by a leash and goes and reaches for the leash. And Becky, you can probably already guess what happened next. I mean, the kid kind of just, he really loses it because we didn't realize at the point we had not asked, we didn't broached the topic, but he was on the spectrum. And so taking this dog was a real intimidating move. You know, this, he yeah. felt threatened or, or, or whatever he might've been going through. And so, you know, all of us in the room just sort of froze in horror. We didn't know what to do. You know, the mom is kind of now beginning to escalate in emotions. Yeah. And, and honestly, the whole thing fell apart. We never saw him again. Right. And, and uh. so I can't help but think that, you know, obviously over time, you know, we started adjusting and, and figuring this out. But, you know, Becky, again, what are some of those little things we can do in the exam room to make sure that our listeners don't go through an experience like I did? It's my favorite question in the whole world. So <laughs> the thing we have to remember, we have we have a tendency in the veterinary industry, unfortunately, you know, we love data. We love talking to each other. We're, we're a lot of verbal communication there. And um, we have a tendency to throw pamphlets at our clients or, you know, regurgitate a lot of information at them. We're not really great at appealing to all the different learning styles. And we have to remember that there are so many different ways that our clients learn. And we forget how routine, just like you started your story, it was routine, it was boring. No, it wasn't. It was routine and boring for you. For them, it was a once in a year or less experience. It was scary. It was unknown. So hearing and knowing every step, everything that's about to happen, verbally communicating, physically communicating, and, and not assuming that our clients have any idea about what we're doing and what we're, what is happening. They don't, they don't maybe even know what a stethoscope is. How can we assume that they do? We should let them know every time and read their verbal cues about how interested they are. But making sure that 
they understand what is happening and what is going to happen creates the lack of fear of the unknown. And I don't care what your learning ability or style is, fear of the unknown affects us all. And so our ability to communicate and remember that what is mundane and and everyday to us is not to whoever is on the other side of that table. And we can never treat it as such on their behalf. Yeah. And and later this led me to, you know, in my first book to say, you always ask permission for everything. And and obviously it was born out of experiences like we had with this, this child, but it really does go to reinforce the point that you have to explain everything. And you're right, Becky, we do, we get just, we fall into the routine and the tedium of the everyday. And we kind of forget that for this person across from us, this is the first time or the only time or a scary time. That's right. And to your point of working with service dogs, there are cases where this dog needs to absolutely not be separated from this individual. And we have to get a good gauge of of what that looks like. Again, these are questions we can easily put on our intake form to have our client have a space, a safe space to make the answer. And then we can create the conversation in the room. Are you comfortable with us bringing your dog to the back for treatments? Do you prefer we stay in the room? Having an idea of, of, no, you can't take my dog away from me, or no, I'm fine, take him in the back, I hate blood. It gives the opportunity for the client to safely say what they need to say. So Becky, once again, it just comes back to identifying personal learning styles, as you stated, preferences and communication, handling, all that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, it really, <laughs> Becky, it's just broken record, but it just comes down to communicating and talking with people and not making these assumptions. I think that that's really the biggest risk that we we make in veterinary medicine or take in veterinary medicine rather is that we just sort of assume that it's routine that it's just the normal that everybody is the same as us when we know in our hearts of hearts that everybody else experiences things in a very very different way well becky as we sort of wrap up this conversation i do want to ask you a little more about people with with physical limitations, because we know the role and importance of, of service dogs. They can help the blind. They can help people with physical inability. Uh, but what are some of the things we can do to be more accommodating in that day-to-day? Getting back to your work with service dogs, which is quite impressive and commendable. Well, so the first thing I tell people when they want to know how to do better, and one thing I think we can always do is just actually try to walk on the other side, try to be on the other side. So try to experience your own clinic visit from the perspective of someone who was in a wheelchair. Try to experience it from someone who was using mobility tools such as crutches or a walker or maybe even just had chronic pain. So come through your doorway. Can you see your receptionist? Can can you make eye contact with them? Or are right. they hidden behind a really high counter? What do the chairs in your waiting room look like? Are these you know, the 1990 benches that were so in, but incredibly <laughs> uncomfortable? Who wants to sit on those for any period of time? You really are agitating any client by leaving them sitting on them for more than one or two minutes, let alone someone who has back pain or chronic pain or God forbid is pregnant. Now you have, don't even have any arms to push up off of. What are you doing to us? So go through your lobby and, and sit in your lobby for 10 or 15 minutes. What do you observe? Go into an exam room, sit in your exam room for 10, 15, 20 minutes, undisturbed. What do you hear in the background? How do you feel sitting in a chair? What is the temperature like? 
try to experience it. Think about how you could move around the room or how you couldn't move around the room. Who could get in there? Who couldn't get in there? And really kind of get a sense from the outside because observation is going to be your number one key to to seeing where you could do things better. And that's because the only other way to learn it is like you said, in the moment of awkwardness where you may or may not ever see that client back. You're, you're going to make the change, but they're not going to know it. And, and it's kind of at their expense. Becky, let me ask you this as we as we do wrap up today's conversation, which could go on and on. I think it's very, very interesting. But what happens when you do inadvertently cross a boundary, offend somebody, you touch the wheelchair? What do you recommend? How do we sort of politely and diplomatically get out of that situation? Wow, that uh, that's a great question to ask because it is really important, right? We are now in this moment where we're incredibly vulnerable and we've messed up. And I think the bottom line is, we live by the golden rule. Like if anybody does anything bad to me or anything offensive to me, I expect them to say, I'm sorry, that was offensive. Um, And thank you for helping me learn a better way or to pointing that out that I shouldn't have done that or apologize. Look at people in the eye, see them. People with disabilities, they're regularly, uh, eyes are diverted away from them. People don't look at them in the eye and treat them as human beings for no good reason. So uh, absolutely apologize, own whatever it is that you did, and and don't make that mistake again if you can. Yeah, I love it. It's just being honest, open, as you mentioned, being vulnerable and accepting that, hey, we are going to transgress against others from time to time. And I don't care if they have special needs or not, the best defense and the best, I think, tactic or what you should do is the right thing is apologize. That's exactly right. And and what you will find for the most part is is the majority of these individuals are used to this. They're right, used to people right. messing up and they actually kind of appreciate you messing up and being open to hearing how you could have done it better because it gives them a learning opportunity. It gives them the power. So often if you look on YouTube, you know, you'll see things not to do to people in a wheelchair, things not to do with people in uh, with a service dog. And and the reason they that individuals make these types of videos is to help empower themselves to educate people because they want to tell you how to interact with them to make everyone more comfortable. So when you apologize and say, I'm sorry, I didn't realize that was rude. How should I have handled that? They're going to be appreciate the opportunity to have a conversation with you. Yeah, my takeaway today, and I think anyone listening to this should take this to heart, is you should now go and take this conversation to your team. You should actually say, okay, guys, what do we do when this situation arises? How do we handle someone with special needs? What can we do to make their experience more welcoming and more positive because if we don't begin with our teams then what will happen is in the heat of the moment somebody will not know how to respond or react or or perform and suddenly now you really are in that awkward moment as Becky stated and it could have easily been avoided by just a little bit of preparation a little bit of thought and a little bit of training because honestly once you get past the 28 CFRs you know title one or title two and three you know it becomes a lot harder it's very easy to build a wheelchair access ramp or widen a door it is very difficult to make that person feel very, very happy and welcome. That's exactly right. And it comes down to having conversations with your staff. Remember to include them again in those learning styles. Are you, 
how, making sure that we appeal to people who are visual and, and auditory learners in, in every kind of way on our staff and on our clients. And again, having these conversations, I really appreciate everyone who's come to my lectures and, and the, read the articles that have been published uh, around this topic because it is really important. And I know when I do these topics, I always think, oh, no one's going to come because it's not science and it's not sexy. It's not cannabis. You know, we can't all be right. tall and loose, right? <laughs> right, right. So I, I'm always thrilled when anyone takes the time out of their CE education of all, all the sexy, fun things they want to learn to be more inclusive. And, and for the folks that, you know, made it this far through this podcast and listen to everything that we've had to say on this topic and, and understanding how important it is, I, I really appreciate it. Well, you heard what we have to say. Now, we want to hear from you. What are your experiences with dealing with special needs clients? How have you found tactics and techniques and, and actions that make them more welcome and positive about coming to your clinic? And what have you done to grow your practice in terms of these uh, communities? We really want to hear from you. You can reach us on Facebook at Veterinary Viewfinder, on Instagram at Veterinary Viewfinder, and on Twitter at Vet Viewfinder. That's right. And while you're there, don't forget to leave us some stars and a few kind words that help us know how we're doing, what you want to hear and what you love about the podcast. And while you're there, don't forget to click to subscribe so you don't miss one great episode of the Veterinary Viewfinder. Until next time. Bye. Bye.